Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Press Gazette's Journalism Matters podcast. My name is Freddie Mayhew, editor of Press Gazette, and today I'm joined by Matt Kelly, editor of The New European. Thanks for joining me, Matt. You're most welcome. Um, so, Matt, you're also chief content officer at uh, regional newspaper publisher Archon. Newspapers and magazines, yeah. Newspapers and That's magazines, right. which, uh, which owns and funds uh, pays for The New European. It's a, well, The New European is owned by Archon. It's owned yeah. by Archon. Because yeah. I see sometimes you get accused of getting yeah. money from, uh, from other places, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's all Archon. Well, I think, I think <laughs> I mean, the sort of conspiracy is that it's funded by Tony Blair or right. George Soros or the European Commission, and I wish it I wish you know but it isn't it's it is purely run on uh, on the revenue we get from circulation yeah. you know we get very little advertising as well which uh, I, I wouldn't mind talking about but uh, but yeah so it's, it's purely almost exclusively circulation revenue and we take no funding from anybody any third party at all so I'm happy to put that rumour to Put, to bed. It, put it on the record. Yeah. So, what is the advertising situation? How come you aren't bringing in stuff from advertising? Well, it's been so. The advertising thing, I think, is a symptom of how we, or a consequence of how we launched it. We launched it as a temporary thing. We said it was going to be around for four weeks. Obviously, quite a niche, specialised audience, and quite politically polarised. So. You know, I don't blame advertisers for saying, well, if you're only going to be around for four weeks, then what's the point of paying any attention to it? But we're now in week 103, you know, and and for about the last 18 months, we've been trying to get uh, noticed um, and saying, you know, we've got this uh, remarkably good audience. You know, we've got 23,000 people every week paying for the paper, really passionate about it. Very good demographic, AB and and wealthy, you know, and all, all of the good things. Um, but it is remarkably difficult for a new product to get any traction in, in the agency world. They, if you haven't got the huge scale, they're not interested. And if there's something a little bit edgy about you or you're in a corner somewhere, then they think to themselves, why should we bother selling this to our, to our, our clients, you know, the advertisers? So it's been a real uphill battle. And that, that's the part of the P&L that has been a struggle. Uh, the thing that hasn't been a struggle is the is the circulation revenue, you know, which fortunately, because we're so expensive, relatively expensive, £2.50 for, you know, what is a, a standard newspaper, no magazines, no supplements or anything. So with that £2.50, we can more or less cover our costs. Some week we lose a couple of hundred quid, some weeks we make a couple of hundred quid. But it's, it's kind of break even. If we had advertising, then it would be a, a very interesting um, business. And I think the advertising will come eventually. So that's what we're hanging on in. And I sometimes see you tweeting uh, the Today Show for not including yeah. you in their roundup. Do you feel sort of a bit snubbed by the mainstream? or are you? I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I learned early on in my tabloid career that if people weren't sort of talking about you, it, then you, were, you weren't at the races. So I'm very keen always to look for... A, 
a viable argument to have with somebody. So if, if uh, picking a fight with, with the Today programme, it helps me get that argument and get that attention, then fantastic. And also, I think we've got a valid point. You know, we've had about two mentions on the Today programme. The Spectator gets mentioned every week, the New Statesman every week. Why not the New European? You know, we're selling almost as many as the New Statesman now after just two years of life. So, you know, we, we, we should be taken seriously, I think. But why do you think it is? Is it sort of a Brexit bias for the BBC, do you think? Yes, I, think, I, I mean, I think it is. I think they see... Uh, I think they, they are slow to wake up to the fact that we are a serious, good newspaper and we've got, you know, a remarkably high calibre of writers for us. I don't think they read the newspapers themselves, you know. I think they read the Daily Mail, the Sun and you know, a passing glimpse at the Guardian, perhaps, but that's probably it. And, uh, you know, getting them to pay attention, to take notice of what is a very kind of particular point of view, but on this huge issue, is very difficult, you know. Although, to be fair to the BBC, they do always get criticised from the other side as well. Yeah, but there's a bit of a... So they they use that as a defence. They say, well, if both sides are slagging us off, we must be doing something right. Now, I would take issue with that. I say that both sides may be slagging the BBC off, but for very different reasons. I think the right wing uh, criticised the BBC because they have learned for many, many years that bullying them works. And the left wing criticised them because they're not getting the airplay that the right wing are getting. So I think it's entirely plausible that you can be criticised by both sides and not be doing very well as well. Right. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason we are talking today is because, as you mentioned, you have now published more than 100 editions. Yeah. Which is quite a remarkable feat, given, yeah. as you said, it was only intended for a four-week run. It came straight hot off the heels of the, of the Brexit referendum vote. Yeah. Yeah. And you were proudly the newspaper for the 48% yeah. of Remain voters, which is still the tagline, isn't it? The, more or less. The paper, yeah. more or less. Um, but, I mean, talk, how, how does that feel? I mean, that's, that is a publishing success by any market, I think, I, I, yeah. in this current climate. I think you're right. I think, you know, if it all collapsed tomorrow we'd still be able to stand back and say that was an extraordinary two years. You know? We've sold more than two million newspapers over those two years. We've won all sorts of awards. You know, I mean, from a, from a team point of view, the prestige that the New European has given Archon, I think, is significant. You know, it put, it put Archon on the map in, in a lot of people's eyes. Mm. Um, and um, I think my hope, my hope is that we'll, we'll carry on for a longer period of time, uh, maybe even, maybe even become, you know, as sustainable as, as those other titles, the Statesman and, and the Specky. But, you know, whatever happens, I think we've done a great job with the product. Even if people hate the politics, and there's plenty who do hate it, we get very few people saying it's a bad newspaper. And we don't get any people in the industry saying it's a bad newspaper because it's patently not. It's a good newspaper. And for me as a journalist, that's the most proud element of this whole story is that this very small team at Archon was able, as you say, you know, within nine days to be able to produce, market, distribute a brand new national newspaper with no budget and to have it still two years later on sale and successful. I think I can't think of another newspaper group that could pull that off apart from Archons. And with your revenue from circulation, you're what breaking even roughly? More or less. Like I say, some weeks we lose a couple of hundred quid. Some yeah. like it is. It, it is incredibly frustrating. I mean, when you think about it, it's it's entirely 
happenstance that the, the, the circulation revenue is an almost exact fit for the cost base. And if it only sold 3,000 more copies a week, then we'd be totally relaxed. But every week I have this kind of huge anxiety moment on the Monday afternoon when I find the circulation figures. And if it's slightly north, then that's great. We've made some money. If it's slightly south, then we lost some money. But, you know, it's, it's not in jeopardy as, as things stand. So we're still building it. And it's about, um, what, up to sort of 20,000, 20, 22 to 23,000. I mean, that's literally the kind of Every week. balance. But it's, inc- yeah. you know, I spent 18 years on the Daily Mirror and you would get excited by a circulation move of 1%, you know. Uh, our, our circulation swings by 15, 20% some weeks. Yeah. And it just depends on, you know, if we've done a great job with the cover, if Brexit's a hot topic... And if I happen to be on radio or Alistair Campbell's doing some publicity for it or whatever, then we'll have a great sale. But if all of those things don't happen, we, we can be 20% down week on week, which anybody trying to build a, a newspaper business, I think, will appreciate just how massively stressful that is. So <laughs> anyway, we, I, I live with a permanent fingers crossed, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's two pounds an issue, isn't it? Two fifty. Two fifty. Sorry. 250. So we went. What was interesting about that? Just in case there's any sort of newspaper nerds in the house, we. We went up from. Like uh, we are certainly in the right place for that. We went up from two pounds to two pound fifty at the beginning of the year and braced ourselves for a sharp decline in circulation, but nothing. So I think it's very interesting that if you've got your product right and the audience really care about you and you, they're passionate, price the price point is not the main thing. And I actually wish we'd charge you know three quid, four quid for it when we launched because I don't think our audience care that much about how much it is what they care about is that it exists you know and and they uh they love the fact that this thing arrives every week and it reminds them that there is a body of people who think like they do mm. and that's worth more than two pound fifty mm. to them so we're building the subscription base that's the big important thing that's gone up isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah so we're up with more than eight thousand subscribers now and i think when we spoke a year, about a year ago when you just hit the year mark that was about five and a half yeah thousand. so it's growing steadily and and that's that's incredibly gratifying and the churn rate the people who are dropping off each week or month is is the lowest in our group out of all the magazines and all the newspapers we've got so again it speaks to that idea that if you are genuinely true to an audience the audience is genuinely true to you um, I guess one of the questions is, I mean, in the time that you've, uh, you've been publishing, we have seen a couple of national titles struggle to, to get off the ground and then yeah. ultimately fail. We yeah. A new day. Yeah. Um, 24. 24, the CN group. Yeah. Why do you think you've succeeded where, where others have failed? So, I mean, the chronology, just to get that right, is that th- those two titles you mentioned had failed before we launched the New European, which makes Jeff Henry's decision to press on and launch the New European... And that's Archon Chief... Archon, Archon, my boss, yeah, Jeff, Chief the Chief Exec of Archon. You know, he's the guy that said, yes, you know, let's do this. And in the context of two big groups having sunk a huge amount of money in new newspaper launches very recently, I think that was a remarkably courageous decision to take. So, big thanks to him. Why did we succeed? I think if you compare the audiences we're talking to, the New Day, okay, and, and the audience, as I recall, it was, you know, it's a new type of reader who's fallen out of love with the traditional newspapers and they're looking for something fresh and speaking in their language. 24, the paper for the North, right? 
who the hell knows whether you're a new day reader or not, or if you're in the north. I mean, to talk about the north, I'm from Liverpool, right? Don't, I mean, don't equate me with someone from Leeds or worse, Manchester. And Manchester and Liverpool are 30 miles apart, you know, and no way would we think that, you know, there's a commonality there. So I think that concept was flawed. But if you ask yourself who knows whether they're a new European reader, it's absolutely obvious. If you're one of the 48%, then you're a new European reader, or you're certainly in, in our market. So the great insight I think that we had, which has sustained us through to today, was that on the morning after the referendum, there was this huge new constituency of people who didn't know they existed 24 hours ago, but suddenly they were one of the 48%. Yeah, you had a market. And they were angry and pissed off, and they were all unified by this common theme. So I think that's why we we did really well to get in really quickly and, and, and just seize on that emotion, you know? Is that still your readership, you think? Are they still those sort of ardent... Yeah. Remainers, yeah. hardcore, hardcore Remainers. Because it's quite, a, it's quite a strong Remain stance than you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, not sort of no two ways about no, it. No, no, I mean it's a bad thing. A hundred percent. In fact, we, I think we, you know, that's our USP. That's our reason for being in the marketplace. And every time I kind of stray away from that because I feel, wouldn't it be nice to be a bit broader, you know? And also, there's this weird thing with progressive liberal journalists that they feel the need to balance, you know. You don't, you don't get the Daily Mail feeling the urge to balance stuff, you know, but, you know, the Guardian, the Mirror, you know, let's present both sides. Every time I do that, I get slapped in the face by the readers, you know. I mean, cancelled subscriptions. We had Aaron Banks writing a column for us for three weeks. I was going that, yeah. Because I thought, that, well, look, you know, our readers are really smart. They're intelligent. Banks is the absolute polar end of the spectrum. And so let's hear what he's got to say, you know. And if you don't like it, turn the page. And the response we got was, I don't want to see that man soiling my new European. And so it was very clear to me that the new European was a, a sacred space for a lot of people and that I shouldn't let people like Aaron Banks piss in the water of the new European. Um, one of the things, I mean, it certainly has an identity as a newspaper, and I think that's quite clear. And, and you, you mentioned earlier the front pages can sort of turn your sales around, I guess, yeah. boost them or, or yeah. otherwise. Um, where, where did that sort of come from, that idea to, you know, really go for a... It's not, it's not traditional newspaper front page no. where you lead with your big story or whatever. Yeah. Um, but how did that sort of come about? Why did you make that decision? So I wanted it to be distinctive on the newsstand. I didn't want it to look like... Uh, the rest of the dailies because we, we've got weird there's weird things about the new european it comes out on a thursday uh it stays on sale all week it's not a periodical it doesn't sit with the new statesman it sits with the national newspapers so it was essential for me that it, it looked distinctive right and at the time i was really into uh the covers of charlie hebdo the french satirical magazine which had these very kind of binary colored uh, cartoons. Obviously, that got them into into loads of trouble. But the look of them, you know, and and the sort of the 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 idea that you could have a very cheeky, uh, uh, fun thing on your front page, but be very serious inside, was really appealed to me. You know, uh, and I remember going to Jeff actually and saying, he said, "What's the cover going to be like?" And I said, "I'm going to do something like Charlie Hebdo," and he and he literally went pale. 
and he said, I, do, I don't want to be attacking Muslims. On, uh, that's not good. I said, no, no, I just mean, we're going to put a cartoon on page one. So, um, so that, that was a big sigh of relief. And, um, and I, I think ever since then, we, we've wanted to... We, don't forget the other thing is we've got no marketing budget. So all of the attention we get is either me gobbing off on radio or TV or the stuff we get on Twitter and Facebook. And nothing goes more viral than a funny cover on Twitter so we get a lot of airplay from, from that and so that hasn't changed no, still no money sort of for the marketing from Arch and, no t- small amounts small amounts uh, so we market uh, the marketing tends to be the money tends to be invested in the discounts we give to new subscribers to convince people to subscribe mm. and uh, and people often ask readers often ask what's the best thing you know should I buy it every week or should I subscribe and the answer is subscribe because the the yield we get from people over a long period of time is much much greater because people do drop in and out uh but uh people it's funny people do like to to go to the news agent and literally go through the the ceremony of buying it you know uh and handing the money over and a lot of people read it and then leave it somewhere public you know like a, a waiting room sort of a pro- small protest yeah yeah just like to try and Pass the word a bit, you know, yeah. like yeah. Some, some, some kind of sinister subterfuge. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, bra- a brand to be seen out and about with for your readers. Well, I mean, that was genuinely the single most important thought in my head when we were talking about should it be a website or a newspaper. And I was very clear from day one that it should be a newspaper because I want, if you think about it, there's a very few ways of visibly demonstrating who you are these days you know if you're a remainer what do you do you can go on a march you can wear a badge or you can carry a copy of the new european and uh, i wanted it to be one of those things that that people held with pride you know like i used to with the independent when i was a pretentious 16 year old and the independent launched and they had that great slogan the independent it is or you and to prove how independent i was i did exactly what they told me to do you know and bought it but i sort of tucked it under my arm and I thought, look at me, how smart and independent I am. So I wanted people to have that same pride in the new European to carry it around like a, like a membership of a club. What's it, when, you, when you're sort of putting the papers together each week, so you've obviously got another day job as well in your yeah. role at Archon. Yeah. And am I right in thinking you're, you're sort of only staff member, as it were, on the new European? Is Jasper Copping? Jasper Copping, yeah. He's ex-Daily Telegraph. Uh, he's a Norfolk lad, so he's... He was. He came back to the EDP, and he was working on the EDP. Eastern Daily Press. Eastern Daily Press, which is our main daily. It's the da- it's the daily of, of Norfolk, really. And uh, and so Jasper happened to be the guy that was put forward as the help for these four weeks. Uh, and I've been so lucky with him because. And the the great thing about it is Jasper is incredibly modest and hates being talked about. So it's a great joy to be able to do this. But he he is such a pro. Uh, so he's like production editor, features editor, news editor, effectively deputy editor. You know, he sits there and he, he pulls all the stuff together. And so my job is commissioning, having ideas, uh, you know, moving ideas from Alistair Campbell, who's full of them, to Jasper. And, you know, and then, and then going through on a Tuesday, which is the day before we go to press. Um, we go to press on a Wednesday morning, so Tuesday's really the, the big day. And I spend a fair amount of time on Tuesday going through the design, the production, because I'm, I'm a production journalist by, by background. But it works really well, and we've got to that nice uh, stage where, where we, we, we're a very small team, but 
we're all completely aligned. We all understand exactly what the paper's about. And in, in many ways, it, the paper feels like it's kind of editing itself mostly, you know, it's, and we're just sort of fulfilling the opportunity. Um, so we'll talk about Alistair Campbell and yeah, his yeah. problem because he's editor at large. Yes, he is, yeah. But um, just tell me, how, come, you're coming out on Thursdays. What, in what stage of the week are you thinking about the, the front page and, and having that impact? And is that sort of, aside from the commissioning, is that sort of your main focus, yeah. getting that impactful front page? Yeah. So when I was on the Mirror, I used to be night editor at the Daily Mirror uh, with Piers, Piers Morgan who, whatever anybody thinks or says about him, is a brilliant tabloid editor. Right? He turned the Daily Mirror around from being a, a lazy, torpid, second-best thing to the sun. And then for a period of years, I believe we were the best tabloid in the marketplace by a margin. And I, what always struck me about Piers was that in the morning, he was really busy obsessing about the news lists and the features lists. But from about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, all he really cared about was what was the front page going to be. And, I th- you know, he had, he had the confidence to let the guys get on with the rest of it. But his job was, what's the front page going to be? Because that's, the, that's your chance, that's your marketing. As Kelvin McKenzie said, you know, the paper's best marketing is its front page. So, from, to answer your question, I'm thinking about it from the weekend on. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, what's, what's the story of the week and how can we put a an attention-grabbing spin on it. We don't always get it right. You know, I, funnily enough, we've got it out in front of us here. I went through every... On our 100th issue, I went through every single front page and, and gave a little note on, on how it happened, what it was like. And on some of them, I look at them and I go, oh, God, that sucks. You know, we really, we really got that wrong. But we live and learn, you know, and we're getting better and better, I think, at understanding that it's got to be a bold message, it's got to be a bold headline... It's got to be a very simple... You, the more clever you get around, uh, around trying to convey something, then the, the fewer people you convey it to. Because people don't stop and stare, you know. They give you a microsecond of their time. Yeah, and certainly, as we've got in front of us here, the bloody idiot yeah. on the number 10 yeah. just after the general yeah. election is one of the most memorable... Yeah, great. Well, I'm glad you like that, because yeah. I can take full credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that was a Matt Kelly yeah, it was. Uh, I mean... You know, we've, there's, there's three or four of us who come up with ideas for the covers, and in truth, most of them are, are you know, have input from all of us. Uh, sometimes the cartoonist or the artists. And, uh, and who is that? Who is your cartoonist? So we've got two guys, both called Barker, Chris Barker and Gary Barker. They don't work for us; they're, they're freelancers. Gary Barker does the cartoons on the cover, and Chris does a lot of the kind of concept ideas, the clever bits of Photoshop or the design, and Chris has got a great brain for magazine impact, you know, in fact he he was like the PPA magazine designer of the year last year, you know, so real talent, and and, uh, Chris one week will come up with a concept, I'll come up with a headline, or you know, Chris will come up with everything, or Steve Anglesey will chip in with a great idea and we'll develop it as a team, but Bloody Idiot was my idea, and <laughs> I say that actually, it was a, it, like all my ideas, it was nicked from somebody, and it was nicked from a, um, a, a slightly similar, and I actually can't remember what the topic was, but it was a US paper had done something similar with a, with a kind of number within a headline that suddenly made sense, right. and then I thought of 10, and then racked my brain for what word will, and then of course idiot came in, and then don't forget this was the day before, that paper was 
published literally the morning the results came came in. So everybody the day before was anticipating that Theresa May was going to sweep the, right, yeah. the thing with it. So the original concept was bloody idiots and talking about the voters who'd just given Theresa May her landslide. And then, so when I th- thought this is turning, I thought it's better still, we'll just call her the bloody idiot. Um, yes, and, it, and it, I think it, it's, I've got a picture of it in a frame in my office, and I, I think it works really well. Yeah, it certainly seems yeah. to chime with a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Isabel Okershot tweeting it, put, putting, putting it up on the newsstand and taking a photo of it and just saying, I'm just going to leave this here, you know, <laughs> putting it out on Twitter, so yeah. Um, and you also get one of the other hallmarks of the new European is having such a wide roster of contributors. Yeah. Because um, you don't have reporters, do you? So we've got Jasper as your, your main guy, but it's, it's yeah. none of the staff archers so, writing. So the group political editor, Richard Porritt, does stuff for us each week as well. But, you know, like everybody else apart from Jasper, he has got responsibilities across the group. So, so yeah, so we, all, the model is 99% contributors. Yeah. You know? And how does I mean, how does it come about? You've got people like Bonnie Greer, yeah. Eddie Azard, all yeah. sorts of big names, yeah. and all the way through to uh, Jonathan Friedland, yeah, Howard Jacobson, yeah. Alistair Campbell, big Yasmin Alibi Brown. You know, yeah. how does that how does that come about? Are, they, are you sort of there, sitting there, hitting the phones, yeah. trying to go, oh, do you want yeah, to write this, or do people come to you because they're, they're Alistair came to us. Alistair came to us in the second week, and he phoned us up. He didn't know who the hell we were. It, it happens that I had dealt with him at the Mirror as features editor of the Mirror when I was features editor there but he'd forgotten all of that but when he was at number 10 when he was at number 10 um, and of course we were really anti the Iraq war so we were at loggerheads with Blair and Campbell over that seriously at loggerheads and doing some amazingly violent front pages about what kind of war criminals they were and all of this stuff blood on his hands and all I mean really vicious stuff so you got the full Alistair Campbell's on so I, 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 I've had Alistair Campbell in full kind of light who the in hell are you lot and you know you, you're so off beam and all of that but in this instance he phoned up and he said who, who, who are you guys and we said well we're you know new newspaper blah 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 he said well I know that what are you trying to do I said well we're trying to stop Brexit and he said well so am I can I get involved and that was in time for the second issue so we'd had Johnny Friedland write the splash on the first issue and then we had Alistair Campbell write the splash for the second issue so that was really important to me generally that we had a very high calibre of, of people in, in the paper because the last thing I wanted, I mean almost personally but also of course on behalf of Archie, the last thing I wanted was to produce something that was second rate or embarrassing. You know, I was determined it was going to be great. So, the, so getting all these good writers is essential to me. Um, and yet yeah, I hit the phones. Uh, I've got a great contacts book because I was six years on the features desk of the Mirror you know, phone being knowing Howard Jacobson is very useful. You know, say Howard, can you write us a great piece about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Set the agenda. Boom, off you go. Uh, Bonnie Greer, the same. Yasmin Alibaya Brown, the same. And we've developed some really great talent, like Charlie Connolly, for instance, who's a guy that writes a lot of our feature stuff. Uh, Ian Walker, who's another freelance writer who isn't a massive name but produces really great stuff. Sophia Du Bois. Um, so. We, it's a blend of big names uh, and up-and-comers, but the only prerequisite is that people can write really well, and the main reason for that is, is we've got no time to sub-copy. So we need copy to come in good and clean and, and not to need much work. So that's what drives the, right. the sort of the good, the talent, really. And they've all got to be Remainers, do they? Or not necessarily. Well, yes, to, I mean, to some degree. Well, to, in, 
God's honest truth. Half of the paper is like a cultural thing, you know, Europhile. And I couldn't swear to you, hand on heart, that they're all Remainers. Don't know. Uh, I suspect they are. Does it bother you? No, not at all. I mean, my wife's not a Remainer, so if I can cope with that, I can can tolerate all sorts of stuff. But tell me a bit more about Alistair then. Um, So he's approached you... He's made the first move there, yeah. and you sort of said, "What? Well, this is what we're about. We're about yeah. stopping Brexit. Yeah. I want to get on board." Yeah. What's his sort of? How does he? How does it work with him day to day? Yeah. How is he, what's his involvement? Sure. So, I mean, for the first eight or nine months, he was in and out, but he was so he wouldn't write every week. Maybe he'd write once every four weeks or something like this. And I was after a short period of time, I was saying, "Why don't you do a regular thing?" And he was quite reluctant to commit to that because. You know he's he's in huge demand. You know he's got and he's got fingers in all sorts of pies, and he's doing motivational speaking, and he's advising governments in Albania. You know, I mean, incredible kind of array of of demands on his time. Uh, but the one thing that has been consistent throughout it is the machine of ideas that you know he is he, by his own admission an obsessive. You know, so I will get literally on most weekdays ten to twenty emails comments about something we've written or ideas about what we should write or an intro to you know some extraordinary name that i I don't know and um and and after a while i said mate look you know you're doing so much work why don't you just come on board as editor at large and uh and he said okay i'll do it and and he is you know we had our 100th birthday party the other day at the national liberal club in fact i think you were there yourself And as I said in my speech, you know, without Alistair, I don't think we could we could have kept on going. You know, he is he really is a driving force of the newspaper. And and people have views on Alistair Campbell, obviously. And I still meet people, New European readers, who say, you know, why have you got that Campbell fella in? You know, um, because because of the Blair years, you know. And and people have strong opinions about that. But I think Alistair's sincerity. And the quality of his arguments make him a must-read. And I think if Brexit ever gets overturned or anything like that, then not that he would ever take it, but he should be Sir Alistair Campbell, you know. <laughs> um, and what's he? Have you ever sort of been at loggerheads as in, in what you're doing, or are you once or twice? Um, yeah, we've well. So a couple of times, Alistair said, you know, I think you've got that wrong, um, uh, and I don't like that cover. Uh, sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. Um, I would say I'm a better tabloid journalist than he is. <laughs> uh, he would argue with that. But anyway, I'm the guy that makes the final. Is, he, is he salaried as a... As a yes, he is, yeah. Yes, he is. You're not going to say how much, though. No, I'm not. But not, he's not on George Osborne money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who is? Yeah. Um, exactly. But tell us a bit about your um, your time at the, the Mirror, then, because uh-huh. it's a long time that you were at that newspaper. What yeah. was that experience like? You say, working under Piers Morgan yeah. and Richard Wallace, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. What was that like for you? Brilliant. Um, I mean, it was a. It feels like a, 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 a an age that's completely disappeared. Those days of well-funded, well-staffed, well-resourced uh, tabloid newspapers that could literally throw money at stuff, you know, and, and just be as good as they wanted to be. Uh, and I, I joined in '96. Colin Myler was just coming to the end of his editorship, and David Montgomery had poached peers from the News of the World. And Piers arrived like a bomb going off, you know. And in truth, I think that the Mirror had become, latterly, had become a sort of tired, slightly, you know, lazy paper. You know, it was, uh, 
it, it wasn't setting the agenda, it wasn't exciting, it was, it was going through the motions. And Piers came in and just ripped it all up, you know, and suddenly we were all on our best game or you were out, you know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So, and I was a young guy. I, you know, one of the biggest advantages I had was that I was quite proficient on a Macintosh. And it was also, it was also at the cusp of that period where, the, the artists were becoming, you know, literally redundant. You know, the guys that would sit next to the night editors and literally draw out the page and then transfer it to the Mac. Well, suddenly journalists like me were doing all of those things. So uh, when Princess Diana died, which was you know, quite early on in Piers' time, I remember the week of her death, we produced so many pages and editions of the newspaper that... and. And circulation was so high that off-stone times came crashing down that we didn't literally didn't have time for that process of a night editor telling an artist to, to... So everything... I remember Pierce saying, right, just get Matt over here, get Mike over here, get Lloyd over here, you know, and you guys just do it. And that, so that was really... That, that week was the reinvention of the mirrors, the way we produce newspapers. So I was very lucky to be around for that. Um, and then, so I had 10 years with Pierce. Brilliant, brilliant editor. I mean, genuinely, you know, exciting, noisy, brash. You know, I, I read a thing he wrote the other day with Murdoch said, you know, the trouble with Piers is his balls are bigger than his brains. And, <laughs> and I think that's definitely true. But, and he'd admit that himself. But ballsy, you know, and really fun. A lot of fun. And then when Piers got fired over those, uh, those Iraq photos, Richard took over. And Richard, very different character to Piers, but a really good guy and a really good editor. You know, a really... A, a fella who just wanted to produce great newspapers and to do good things with the newspaper. And that, that was great, you know, to... I've always felt that journalism's a craft, right? And we all make our money from journalism. But there are some people in journalism who are lucky to do those things and also get to feel that they're doing something good as well and beneficial and positive. And that's not true, I don't think, of, of all of us, unfortunately. You know, I could name newsrooms where I think people take a lot of money because they don't feel that emotion. 
but on the mirror you always felt like you were doing a, a good thing. Um, so after a while, I, uh, Richard asked me to redesign the newspaper, and I'm hooked up with a, a, a Barcelona design agency called Casas and Associates, who I'd later go and work for full time. Um, and after I led the redesign of the mirror, I then went to do the uh, redesign of the website, and I never left digital from that point. And I ended up running the digital outfit for a while. And then uh, Boston Consulting Group came in and did a kind of study on our future strategy and brought a guy in from AOL above me called Chris Ellis, who's a friend of mine, a really good friend, but we had a really difficult year where... I don't think I got Chris, and I don't think he got me. I think I knew a lot more about telling stories than he did, and he knew a lot more about the science of digital than I did, and it was an uncomfortable... It could have been a great marriage, but it was a very uncomfortable marriage. So after about a year of that, I said to him, look, you know, if there's a chance of having an amicable parting of the ways, I'll bite your arm off. And he said, that's fine by me. So I left the mirror, and I joined um, this agency, Casas and Associates, and I spent um, about 18 months, two years in Argentina doing the uh, digital transformation of the biggest newspaper in Argentina, a paper called Clarín, um, a newsroom of 650 people. And when I got there, there was about 30 who were digital, and when I left, there was about 30 who weren't. So that was a... And I've still got great, great friendships there in Argentina. We got pregnant. My wife and I got pregnant during that period. And so I had to come back and look for a UK job. And it was at the time when uh, David Montgomery had just bought Local World and he was looking for a digital director. So I joined Monty there. That was sold to Trinity Mirror. Didn't want to go back to Trinity Mirror. And Jeff Henry came calling and said, would you like to come to Archons? Yeah. And that was a couple of years ago now? When was that? Yeah, that was uh, December 2015. So, so in December, it'll be three years. And full, full disclosure, I was, I was at Archons. You were at Archons, old yeah. boy, that's and right. And I was briefly there while you were there. That's right. Yeah. Was it my arrival that convinced you to <laughs> yeah, start to go? Yeah, that's it. But you did, at Archons, while you have made big changes while at Archons, yeah. um, we did have the, the audience first strategy, didn't we, uh, yeah. in November 2016, which you sort of brought in. And that was a lot of redundancies there, so more than 50 redundancies. Yeah. Uh, well, no, there were 50 positions make, put at risk, but there weren't that many redundancies. There were a lot of new roles. New roles yes, that's new, right. But the news editor roles and the sub roles basically went. Yeah. It? Well, there's a, we, I, the one, one of the good things that I inherited at Archon was a newspaper production unit who were a very talented bunch of people, good designers, good processors of, of pages. And my general view on newspapers right now national or local, is that, you know, the printed format is yesterday's format. I mean, put the New European to one side, but by and large, the printed format is the format in decline, right? But it's also the format that makes you the most money. So the challenge is, how do you find a way to produce the printed format as efficiently as possible, but also give yourself as much possibility and scope and resource to do the new format, which is digital and, and other channels, you know, voice and all sorts of other opportunities. And so anything anything that can make the newspaper process more efficient is a good thing in my book. Now, obviously, that's contentious, and, and you know, lots, lots of people don't agree with me. Lots of people disliked very much the, the view I had taken on, on minimising the effort to produce the newspapers. But ultimately, I have to create the strategy that I think will give Archon the best chance of making it through, you know. And in your eyes... Is print sort of on a terminal decline? 
Well, whether it's terminal or not, I don't know. But it's almost... But it's being managed in that way. Well, well, no, not necessarily. I mean, magazines, for instance, are, some of our magazines are in growth. Uh, the New European is in growth. Uh, some of our weekly titles are turning round, and they're not in growth, but they're, they're coming round. And we've got some very interesting projects in little pockets of the country which are not digital strategies or print strategies, but audience-first strategies, and we are seeing significant uplifts in newspaper sales, not just digital traffic. But when we approach a community in a, in a particular way and we stop thinking of ourselves as this kind of one-directional broadcaster channel, you know, just throwing content at people, but we invite people in and make them much more of a part and try and give them a sense of emotional investment in that title, we are seeing growth across every channel, including newspaper sales. Yeah. So I'm... All the, Although, you know, if you ask me to put my hand on my heart and say, you know, in 25 years, will newspapers be the core revenue for, for local news groups like Archant or, or Trinity or Johnston Press? Yeah, I am asking. Go on. The answer is no, plainly. If we haven't made the transition to significant digital revenues within 10 years, you know, displacing print as the main source of revenue, we're in a lot of trouble. So digital needs to become the... Of course it does, of course it does, you know. And what about this sort of threat from Facebook and Google on that and then taking the money away where you would ordinarily think that's where you'd be able to get it from online advertising, that sort of thing. Where do you sort of see that and what do you see the remedy being? So this this campaign you guys have got, you know... So we've got the duopoly campaign. The duopoly thing. So... Facebook and Google, basically, you're not paying enough back, you need to pay more, you're relying on content as news publishers. Yes. So, I mean, it's an interesting week for that, isn't it? Because we've had the copyright law in the the European Union rejected. That's right. I thought that was a good thing. I, you know, unlike, this is, this, I have to say, this point of view is counter to our official point of view, and it's counter to the NMA's point of view. I think the idea of taxing Google for links on Google News is just stupid. You know, if you want to get more tax from Google, fine. You know, get the government to tax them properly as a business. Get the government to invest in community journalism, you know. So we've got the BBC paying for local democracy reporters. So that principle of there's a, there's a, a set of content that newspapers can really no longer afford to cover, but it should be covered because it's in the public interest, so the BBC will pay for it. Well, you could equally apply that to court reporting to council reporting. These are all things that are, by and large, unprofitable for newspapers to do, but are of great public service. So, you know, uh, Lady Cairncross's review, I hope, will start to think about what other areas of uh, this public service should the government support. So you could support that through greater tax revenues from Google as as a very profitable corporation. But to say to Google, we're going to... Uh, we're going to financially penalise you for being the ultimate user of the fabric of the internet, which is sharing. And don't forget, Google drives huge amounts of traffic to, to us as products and has given us greater reach than ever before. Mm-hmm. I think is is just... Well, I think it's stupid, but even if you thought it was a good idea, I mean, it's, it, it's never going to happen because... What would Google do if they'd shut it off? And how do we know that? Because they've done it. They did it in Spain. You know, Spain had a domestic law equivalent to this link tax. And Google just said, OK, there's no money in Google News for us, so we'll just turn it off. And the Spanish publishers are crying now. 
they did the same thing in Germany, but they were a bit cleverer because they made it optional. In Spain, it's compulsory. In Germany, it was an option, and most of the newspaper groups have gone back to the to the old system. So, you know, I think you've just got to accept the status quo mm. and make the, make your model around the reality of how people use the internet. So probably a government levy and then that repay it in, well, back in is to, to publish is sort of the... Yeah, kind of well, box. whether it's a levy or not, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't object to that, yeah. But or whether it's just saying, you know, I'm sorry, you are paying far too little tax, Google, Amazon, you know, Facebook, in the UK. You can't just keep shipping all your profits back to to either Dublin or to, to Sacramento. Or but again, the government would take that money and yeah. give it back. Yeah, that's what I think, because, I mean, the government has said they're going to look for ways to support this important public service that local newspapers do. So That's that, right, we're expecting recommendations from the, from the Care Cross Review, so we'll have to wait and see. Can I pull you guys up on one thing that I also think? This, this word duopoly. Mm. So I don't object to people thinking that Facebook and Google are both villains of the piece, but I do object to tying them together and looking at them as though they're the same thing, because they are incredibly different. And their motives are different, their business is different, the way they influence publishers is entirely different. And so I just think we do ourselves a disservice every time we label them as the duopoly, like they're one thing. You know, they're not. They're, you've got to tackle each of them very differently, I think. Google has certainly made that point to us. Yeah. Um, do you, you don't, as journalists, have some sort of hesitation in having a government, you know, being funded by the government in some way, you know, uh, if there was to be a levy? Well, not really. I mean, the BBC is funded by a, you know, a tax, effectively, and uh, is, is a highly independent and uh, totally autocratic organisation. So I don't think there would be any uh, strings attached. I just think, you know, if the government said, here's money and this is what we are giving you the money for, then... You know, if you didn't, then if you th when then went and spent it on twenty-seven great kebab restaurants in Swindon, then obviously that would be bad. But if you are then able to cover courts and councils and do that public service without having too much of an eye on the budget, that's that just seems to be a completely positive thing. And do, do you think there is a light at the end of the tunnel for print? We're not going to see it suddenly turn around and, and go back to the way it was, or are we? No, not at all. Because but, I mean, if 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 only because there's so much, so many other uh, options for our attention. So, you know, I, I often like to say that we're not in the content business or even the audience business. We're in the relevance business, you know. And there's a direct correlation to the relevance that we can create in a marketplace and then are able to pass that relevance on to people who can't create relevance, i.e. advertisers. And if you look at the decline in commercial revenues over the last 10 years it's almost exactly maps the decline of relevance of those products in, the, in, in newspaper sales. So we are becoming less relevant in the marketplace. In that one channel, we can expect less from advertisers, naturally. Um, so we, we're not going to have the advertising revenues that we enjoyed 10 years ago. In fact, you know, we're seeing key uh, vertical categories, property, motoring, recruitment, we're seeing them being absolutely savaged, you know, not just by Google, but by other third parties. And in some ways, you know, you could, you could argue that that's never going to come back. I personally think some of it could come back if we, if we get our act together and we start thinking about the communities in a more sensible way. But without doubt, big chunks of that have gone and aren't coming back. So, 
the, the, the thing, the cost base remains the same, more or less. You know, the, I mean, everyone's gone through periods of redundancies and stuff like this, and, and we've attacked the cost base, but it's still a huge lump of money that is in danger of being more than the revenues. So that's when, when I'm talking about the necessity, the absolute necessity to make that digital leap. That's, that's what that's about, you know. I think if you don't have the money, you don't have the money, but... Uh, I guess there is the argument that if you're trimming staff and you're cutting away at newspapers, then you haven't got a chance of yep. reviving them into, you know, yep. and making them into a product that people want to yep. read again. Completely agree. Mm. And there is a balance. There's a balance, and that's my constant, you know, uh, nightmare or you know, anxiety is what's what is the what is the balance where do we when do we go too far that we we no longer have an opportunity to deliver and you know i think i won't talk about arch specifically but you can look at newspapers across the country and point at newsrooms where it's gone too far the newsroom i you know i started on a little paper called the formby times in uh, 1988 right four people in this village how old, how old are you so i was about 18 19 right. yeah so four people, news editor, editor, and two cub reporters, uh, in this little office in the middle of this... One of which is you, one of the cub reporters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In this bustling little community, which now, by the way, is like Beverly Hills, because all the footballers live there, right? But in those days, it wasn't so much. And, and we were right in the village, and people would come and go, come in, place their adverts, tell us who was getting married, who just died. And we were at the heart of the community, right? And the paper was great. It was a weekly paid-for newspaper, and it sold about 5,000 copies a week. So it was profitable. And then Trinity Mirror decided what they could do is shut that office and move the journalists 12 miles down the road to Southport, where there was a bigger hub, and produced the Formby Times from there. And it sort of limped on a little bit like that, and, and, but survived more or less... And then they decided, actually, we can move some of those staff to Chester, you know, because production can happen over there. We'll have a couple of people in Southport, and they can just phone in or, or call in. And you could see the relevance evaporating away. You had no presence. You had no people on the ground. You had no ability to understand what was happening. And the paper closed, right? No more Formby Times. Gone. Shame. Great shame. Now, when I moved to Archant, the Islington Gazette, right, the staff were based in Barking, 12 miles down the road, right? And there was this... I, I remember there was a story that Christmas uh, and a guy had gone missing, a young guy, very good-looking guy, very striking um, face, and he was on every phone box and shop window missing. Have you seen this guy? And it was a tragic story because he, it turned out he'd killed himself and he was found in this, in this park. And the uh, Islington Tribune, which is a terrific weekly newspaper run by, you know, the Camden... Uh, guys, the independents, the, the foot, the, uh, Paul Foot's kid, I think, runs it. So I shouldn't say kid; he's probably older than me. But anyway, terrific newspaper, much more in touch with the community. They had the story, but the Islington Gazette didn't. Now you could not miss that story if you were in the community. But if you're down the road embarking, you know you're going to miss it all the time. So I am an absolute believer, literally having to have guys in the community who know the community who care for the community who do all of those lovely old-fashioned things like make the contact go to the pub speak to the landlord find out what's going on go to the court and look which room has got 20 people in it you know and, and follow the story and if we don't do that if we're all sitting behind desks remotely going through press releases or looking on social media for stuff or or just doing the calls 
then we, we become completely irrelevant and we deserve to die. So that's, that's my constant challenge is how do I balance that aspiration with the absolute reality that the cost base is constantly shrinking? Mm. But I, I hope my heart's in the right place. I'll ask you to put your national hat back on now. Yes. And just talk about, well, Brexit is obviously the, the, the thing that, uh, that drives the new European. Uh, I think we, when we spoke on was uh, pretty much exactly a year ago, I think, for your sort of first year in print, uh, you told me then, if, uh, and I'll quote you, if we're a stone in the shoe of Paul Dacre, then that's a worthwhile position for me. Yeah. Now, <laughs> with... We've, not only were we a stone in the shoe, we've ousted him. I was going to say, he's now on his way out. Um, yeah, who would have thought Mighty Paul Dacre yeah. is, uh, is leaving at the end of this yeah. year. Um, and we've also had a change of editor the Daily Express. So yes. Hugh Witter has been replaced That's right. by, by Gary Jones, Jones yeah. after, after Trinity Mirror now Reach bought, bought yes. uh, Express newspapers. Um, do you think, I mean, there was both those titles were such big... Uh, ardent Brexit campaigners yeah. and could be said to have helped swing the vote. Yeah. Do, do you think that's true? Do you think I think the Daily Mail, no question. Yeah. Uh, I think the Express was talking in such a banal way to a very fixed audience that it was, you know, I mean, honestly, who cared what they said? You know, it was a weather forecast one day or then it was some Princess Diana's ghost or it was statins, you know, and then it was like evil remainers. Gary Jones, who, who I know and, and, for disclosure, worked with for a long time at the Mirror, right. overnight transformed that back into a real newspaper. And it showed you that all the guys who were labouring under this lazy editorship, and I'm sorry, Hugh Witter, I don't know you, but I thought your paper was terrible. All of those journalists have been liberated and are now producing a good, relevant newspaper. Uh, Paul Dacre, though, I think for the last 20 years, has been feeding a personal bias into the minds of this notional middle England. And when the uh, referendum came around, it was almost like a Pavlov's dog, you know, operation. All he had to do was ring the bell. The bell was the word immigrants. And suddenly, you know, he could turn people against against Europe. Uh, I, I, I do not regret Paul Dacre's passing. You know, I would say that his newspaper is brilliantly produced. You know, it is a superb product. There is not a newspaper in the market that is more tailored and honed for its audience. But I think latterly he'd started to lose the plot a bit. You know, I think all of this enemies of the people, crush the saboteurs, you know, the Theresa May sycophancy, and the whole idea that half of the country was essentially evil and twisted. I think Lord Rothermere must have been looking at that thinking, gosh, Paul's gone off the deep end here. And Geordie Gregg, who is, has edited a very sensible, high-quality, good mail on Sunday and has a Remain bias, will come in and, I think, make it a probably much better newspaper, more sensible. It'll probably be a lot less angry. It'll probably be a lot less conspiratorial. It may be a lot less sensational in part, but it'll be, I think, a, a better newspaper. And newspapers make a difference in the country. You know, a bad newspaper can have a very bad influence in the country. And so I hope that that, that's, that turnaround will happen now. But when you get up in the morning, do you look at the mail and think, right, I've got to come back against no. that? No. Somet- well, somet- in the new European context. Sometimes, sometimes, more often than is comfortable, the mail's front page gives us something to really push back against. Um, and we do it with great, I think, objectivity. You know, we've got Liz Gerrard, who's a former Times journalist, who is 
brilliant at doing the analysis on newspaper story counts, uh, gender diversity within newspapers, uh, front page treatments, and all, all you know when they're attacking certain. Uh, topics, how do they do it, the consistency they do it with, you know, and the kind of repetitive messaging that they, they put out over the readership. And we do it like that, uh, rather than just saying Paul Dacre's a so-and-so, you know, uh, we leave that to Alistair. <laughs> um, and on Brexit, could you ever see the day when the New European puts it to one side and, and maybe evolves as a newspaper and, and it's always going to be something on, in the back saying, oh, we wish that hadn't happened, but yeah. you might change this. Well, you're working on the assumption that Brexit's going to happen, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you go into I, I don't, I don't. Um, I mean, look, I mean, we're recording this the day that they're all at Chequers having their bun fight. I mean, who knows what's going to happen this evening? Who knows what's going to happen next week? I always quote this... Uh, Someone once asked William Goldman, the great screenplay writer, what was the secret of Hollywood? And he said, the secret of Hollywood is that no one knows anything. And that, to me, is like politics right now. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, so, but let's say you're right. Let's say Brexit does happen. I think it would be very difficult for us to make that transformation from um, what, is, what has been a single-issue paper, but is, is the core, the backbone of the paper, if people lose interest in, in that topic. Would you think, oh, well, we've had our run, we'll close? Was yeah, sure. If we would... ever get boring, we'll close. I, the last thing I want to do is, is get boring and just hang on for the sake of it. If we start hemorrhaging money, we'll close, no question. Someone will close it for me, you know. Um, but I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want to be just producing a weekly paper by rote because we happen to have landed a stable audience who, you know, no one knows what it is anymore. I'd much sooner close that and do something more interesting we did a great project called the new feminist did you see that yes so about uh, i think it was issue 98 and we got caroline criado perez who's the the woman who campaigned for millicent Fawcett's statue and i had had a very violent run-in with her on twitter and she accused me of being sexist and, and i said well come and edit the paper then if you're so smart and she said okay <laughs> so she did she came in she did an amazing job uh, and it was a it was a really good commercial seller for us uh, it, it, it completely uh, changed the way I think a lot of women saw newspapers. Suddenly, a lot of women looked at newspapers and realised that they were all totally male-dominated, everything apart from this thing, because it was so distinctive. So I think that potentially there's a market there for a paper written by women, edited by women, cartooned by women, photographed by women, about women's topics, and sold exclusively to women. Why not? Uh, so maybe that's something we'll do in the future. Is that something you think you're going to repeat? Because that was a one-off edition, was it, for the week? Yeah. Is that something that you might do yeah. again next year? Well, maybe maybe sooner. I don't know. Uh, you know, Caroline did such a great job with it. I mean, she's a natural. She's never done it before, but she commissioned some amazing people that I genuinely felt this is a problem for me because her paper's better than mine. But anyway, it went out and it got huge attention. People loved it. Almost exclusively positive reaction. And, uh, you know, it's one of the proudest things we've done. Do you feel that the being a pop-up newspaper, as it was sort of described when you first saw it, gives you this kind of flexibility that you wouldn't ordinarily totally, have? Totally, totally. It I'm, seems like if you want to do totally. something, you can pretty much go for it. So if, say, say I got offered... Um, there's only one job I've ever really wanted, right, in newspapers, and I'll never get it now, but at the time, you know, when I was on The Mirror, I wanted to be editor of The Mirror, right? And... But say I was offered the editorship of the Mirror, right? You would go in and you would inherit, like any newspaper or any established magazine, all of the backstory, 
all of the, everybody else's efforts and inputs and everything. I had none of that with the New European. It was just our thing. It was our thing, and there was no expectation of success. So every week, we just thought, let's have a go. You know, let's have a go at this. And, you know, we did this cover of Trump with the, the barcode of the newspaper on his upper lip, like Hitler's moustache. And we said, is Trump a fascist, right? There's no way I would have done that if I had just walked into a newspaper with a three-year P&L plan and, you know, the fear of getting it wrong and having a huge contention. But because... P&L being? Profit and loss. Right. So, you know, so the idea that your, your revenues and your costs are mapped out to the nth degree for the next three years and somebody, there's a crisis if you don't hit that number. There was none of that. So, I mean, there is a little bit more now, but at that time, uh, we just thought, hell, let's just do it. And it was, that was one of the great issues that got really talked about. Uh, I happened to be on Any Questions that week, and it was a big topic of conversation on Any Questions, and we sold buckets of papers. So I think there's a freedom that comes from not caring, and it's really hard, though, not to care in an industry where if you lose 2 or 3% of your readership, you get fired. And that's today's reality. So... To, to sit there and to think, my God, I could get fired over this front page because it may offend a big chunk of my audience, is, is uh, you know, that's a perilous position to be in. And lastly, what, sort of what are your plans going forward for, for the new European? What do you want to do with it that you still haven't? Where do you hope it will end up? I just want to keep it interesting, keep going. Um, you know, maybe... It'll, maybe it's not the right format. I don't know. Maybe it'll evolve into a different format. It's, what it's would you a, like to see it become? Well, I don't... I mean, it's an absolute bugger to get out every week. You know, it's constant stress. Uh, so fortnightly might be good. But, of course, fortnightly, half the revenue, you know, presents its own challenges. Um, it, the complaint we get is that there's too much to read in it and people don't have the time to read it. And I think if people cancel subscriptions, then it's that. It's just said, look, I love it, but I just I haven't read it for the last three weeks because it's just too much. So maybe a little bit less in it, more photographs in it, more photograph essays um, would be good. Um, and I also think we, at the moment, we've hemmed ourselves in with so many regular columnists that we haven't got as much room as I would like to do different stuff. So maybe less, fewer regular columnists, you know. Um, but that aside, for the moment, we just try to get the best paper out every week. Every, week, every single week for every 102 issues, I've walked away on the Wednesday morning after we've gone to press and said to myself, was that the best you could do? And every week I've said yes. So if I get a week where I say, do you know what, I could have done better, or, or that's a poor paper, I will fall into vast self-loathing and try to close the thing as soon as we can. <laughs> and on that note, we'll end. Thank you. Matt Kelly, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.